We don't have to be judged for the sin that we've committed if we put our faith in Christ. But that justification does not come by what we have done, but by what he has done. And so there is nothing in us that we can boast about how good we are and how we made it to God ourselves and how we lived up to this godly standard. We didn't. We are justified solely through Jesus. He is our Savior. The only thing you did was put your faith in him. We are continuing our series uh, going through the book of Romans. If this is your first time here or you don't know what we do, here's how it goes. Uh, we firmly are rooted in scripture. So our name is Come to Life Bible Church. We got started as really a Bible study that was meeting at another church that had closed. And the continuing work of that Bible study spurred this church on. That Bible study, many of the attendees had said that the Bible was finally coming to life for them, and that's how we got our name. And so we have decided to dedicate our ministry to really turn, turn that to be true, not just in the middle of the week, but on our weekend service as well, to bring the Bible to life, but also that in knowing God better through the revelation of his word, that you would also be brought to life. That's the goal here. Now, this is particularly true, I think, through the book of Romans. Now, there's a, there's a saying that I'm sure all of you have heard. I'm not going to say it in the crass way that the world says, but you'll understand what I'm saying in a second. You ever heard, you know the, the term or the phrase, everything rolls downhill? You know what I'm, I mean by everything, right? Uh, it's typically used in the workplace as whoever is above you in management, whoever's at the top. Uh, whatever they don't want to deal with just rolls downhill, right? And so everyone kind of deals with the jobs that suck at the bottom of the ladder because everything rolls downhill. Well, here's the thing about that phrase. It's ridiculous. Obviously, stuff rolls downhill. Not just negative, but also positive. In fact, everything does roll downhill because gravity works in one direction. And now the point of that is, in the church, here's a problem that I see that doesn't match up particularly with the book of Romans or the ideas in scripture. There is, here's the thought. Good theology is at the peak of the mountain. And water flows from the peak as the snow melts. And from the peak of good theology, of knowing which theos or theo from theology is God, it's really the study of God, understanding who God is. Good theology is a good understanding of who God is and what he's done. So that's what I mean. That's at the peak of the mountain. And out of that flows all of the things that the church should be doing, whether that's works, serving the community, clothing and feeding those who need to be clothed and fed, spreading the gospel to those who need to hear it, doing good discipleship and evangelism. All of that flows from good theology because if you have a good understanding and relationship with God, if you understand that peak, the rest of it should flow into your life. 
Now, that's actually what has happened thus far in Romans. Paul is starting out his letter to this church that he desires to go to, he doesn't have a relationship with, hasn't met yet, desires to go there, is writing a letter to them to give them an understanding of what they should be teaching and understanding as Christians in the first century. And because he didn't build that church, he doesn't know what problems they are facing, so he gives a general, overwhelming, good understanding of theology and what the church should know. And he sends that to Romans and then gets into application because application to the to life stems from good theology. And that's how he has set up the book of Romans. But somehow in the 20th and the 21st century in modern church, we have gone the other way where we have tried to make church be motivational speeches to do all of the principles and practices of Christianity as we march our way up towards theology. And as you start acting like a Christian, we'll teach you more about who God is. And that is backwards. Paul does it the right way. He gives you an understanding of who God is and why you should accept him and what the point is. And then from that flows all of the life application. And so that is also partly why we do the things we do. That's why we go through books in totality and go verse by verse in totality through the scriptures because we want to understand what God says and put him at the forefront and understand him, not what a preacher thinks. So we put God first. His word is first and foremost at the height. Now, tonight what we're getting into is what I like to call the greatest trade in human history. Now, here's the deal. If you don't know anything about me, I will tell you this. I have the worst luck as a fan of any sports team ever. I'm a Bills fan, so many of you know how that goes. We get disappointed year in and year out. And I'm a child product of the 90s, which meant I got disappointed four years in a row by making it to the Super Bowl and getting kicked. I am also a Knicks fan. That's probably enough said. The Knicks have won a championship not in my lifetime, and they make some of the worst decisions in history. We'll get back to that in a second. I am also a Mets fan. So you all can start praying for my sanity. I am a Syracuse Orangeman fan, they have won one championship in my lifetime, and that's probably the one, one thing that was okay, except they took away like a thousand of Jim Beheim's wins as a coach because he did exactly what all of the other Division I coaches are doing in recruiting, but they took away his wins. So, yeah, that's, even that is bad for me, right? Like, I just have bad luck. Now, here's what I mean by this, by the greatest trade. I'll use the Knicks as a great example. Because here's what the Knicks do. If you're not a basketball fan, I'm sorry. I'm going to talk you through this anyway. But in professional sports, you, tr you try to make trades to make your team better, to try to make the pieces fit better. Now, unfortunately, the Knicks only had like a 10-year run in my lifetime when things went well for them. And that was when they had Patrick Ewing in the 90s. But unfortunately, Michael Jordan and Hakeem Olajuwon also existed. So I had no luck in the 90s being a Knicks fan. 
But since then, all they've done is make bad decisions. That's it, just bad decision after bad decision. And I thought, finally, for the first time ever, early on in the 2000s, like midway through, that they were going to make a good decision. Like, they went after Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony is the only athlete who has ever given me any hope as a sports fan because he was on the Syracuse team that won the national championship. And I'm like, now he's going to be a Nick. He's going to be wearing blue and orange back where he belongs in New York. And the idea is he can't do it himself. So what do the Knicks do? They're going to partner him with somebody to help make them a viable franchise, a team that could possibly win a championship. And there are so many options on the table. LeBron James at one point was on the table. So my feelings for him have gone downhill. There were lots of options on the table. So who did the Knicks get? They get a past his prime, aging, injured, Amare Stoudemire as the person to back him up. And so what happened? Carmelo Anthony slowly faded into irrelevance as a basketball player. Uh, the only thing that mattered was that he scored a lot of points in New York, but they were never a serious contender because they continually made bad trades. Bad trades make a team worthless. What we're going to see tonight is really the greatest trade, something that can give you more value for your life than anything else ever. That's what we're going to discover tonight. This would be if the Knicks did the right thing and got someone to help Carmelo that could actually help him. All right, so this is what we're going to talk about. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, <clears throat> which states, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it starts with, therefore. What does that mean? Well, it means everything that happened before it. The first four chapters really are this, this philosophy or theology that Paul is laying out. He's reminding us to endure sound teaching and to not be afraid to deny ourselves lust and, and personal pleasures and deny the flesh so that the spirit can thrive, to endure. He tells us that in Romans 1. He reminds us that the existence of God and the morality of humanity has been known and in the conscious. We are fully aware of God's existence, and part of that is through the fact that we notice that there is this morality even among the Gentiles, who don't have the law of Moses, still sometimes they follow and do things that would be considered good because humanity is made in the image of God. And through our creation in the image of God, we recognize this standard and sometimes follow it because we were made in his image. However, the problem is we also fail to live up to our own standards of morality and how we judge others and how we hold grudges against others. Yet, we still fall prey to the same things we judge others for, to the standards we hold others up to. So when it comes to judgment, we don't even live up to our own standards. How on earth do we hope to live up to God's? And these are some of the points that Paul has been making up to this point. And therefore, after all of that, he has pointed out that we are justified through the death of Jesus. All of these problems that we have, all of the judgment of God, uh, the fact that we can't even live up to our own standards, the fact that we have failed to live up to God's, all of that 
is erased by this one point. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of the human failure and sin that separates us from God, we are able to reconcile that and be back at peace with God because of Jesus. This is through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope in the glory of God. We get to stand in God's grace. This means a couple of things. One, our relationship with God can be reconciled. We don't have to be judged for the sin that we've committed if we put our faith in Christ. But that justification does not come by what we have done, but by what he has done. And so there is nothing in us that we can boast about how good we are and how we made it to God ourselves and how we lived up to this godly standard. We didn't. We are justified solely through Jesus. He is our Savior. The only thing you did was put your faith in him. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what's being stated here by Paul is because of that justification, because Jesus took your punishment, took your sin on the cross, and because you put your faith in him, he's your substitute, you can be reconciled with God, and the gift you get is the Holy Spirit. And because of the Holy Spirit, you can actually have hope when things are difficult. Because you know that the end result isn't the ground. The end result is eternal life with God. And even when you're experiencing trouble, you can persevere because you have the Holy Spirit. If Jesus persevered from the grave and was resurrected, you can handle a tight budget. You can handle what's being thrown at you because God is on your side. And if you think you got problems, Jesus was buried and dead for three days. And he overcame that. And we have the same power of the Holy Spirit lives in us because of the justification of faith. We can handle what the world is throwing at us or the problems that we have because they're nothing compared to the problem of death that was already defeated. The Holy Spirit was given to us. Verse 6, for when we, still, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. There it is. All of that was summed up in that verse, because Christ did not die for people who were pretty good. Christ did not die for people who were not too shabby. Christ didn't die for people who were doing their best. The word here is the ungodly, because that is the standard of measurement for heaven. Are you like God? No. No one reaches that standard of perfection. Christ died then for all. All, because all of us are ungodly. None of us measures up to the standard of God. None of us are righteous. All of us have failed to live up to the standard of the glory of God. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the principle there, or the point that Paul is making, is think about what Jesus did for you. How many of us would actually be willing to lay down our life for someone who really mattered? Someone who was, in our minds, a really good person. Few people would be willing to lay down their life for someone who's a really good person. Just stand in front of the bullet for them. Maybe a few more would be willing to stand in front of that bullet if it was a well-known really good person. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't die for us while we were good. He died for us while we were opposed to God. While we were sinners, he died for us. So that's the love of God on full display. He died for us while our hearts were against him. For a world that hated him. In the moment, in the Gospels, you can see the attitude towards Jesus as they're yelling and screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They hated him in the moment. And in that moment, he died for humanity while humanity had their back turned on him and hated him. And he did it for them. Do you imagine dying for someone who hates you? That's what Jesus did because God loves you that much. Now, it says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And because he died for us while humanity hated him, while we hated him, while we were opposed to him, we can now be saved from God's wrath, saved from death, saved from the punishment of our sin because our punishment was given to Jesus in our place if we have faith in him. For if we are, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled while uh, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so here's the point. All the way up through verse 12 is that Jesus saved you from wrath. The punishment for sin is death, but Jesus took that punishment on our behalf, and we now have a free gift of eternal life for those who put their faith in Christ. We are saved by God's grace, by someone who was willing to die for us while we were opposed to him. That's the love of God on full display. And so here's the practical piece of it in the rest of the chapter. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, this is the beginning of the application. All death and sin came from Adam. Adam is the one we blame. Adam is the problem. Because of Adam's sin, sin and its consequences were passed on to all of the human race. Adam is a type, is what Paul writes. What does that mean? He's a representative or a parallel to what Jesus will be. 
How so? In Adam's life, what he did affected all of humanity. And the same thing is true of Jesus. Now, what Adam did actually caused the problem that we all face, the sin problem, the thing that causes God's wrath to move against us, that gives us death and judgment. But, verse 15, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. Now there's a few important things in there we got to get, but here's the ultimate point. Just like death came through one man, eternal life is offered through the next one, Jesus. Now this is expounded on a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the first Adam and the last Adam, meaning Jesus is the last Adam. In Not that he's the last person, but that he's the last one to affect all of humanity in this way. Through Adam, death came because of sin. But the punishment for sin was taken on by Jesus, and the offer of eternal life is given. But here's the difference between the two. What Adam did affected every single human being ever. What Jesus did, it said, the gift of grace through one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. It doesn't say to all. It doesn't mean that the gift, the gift of grace or the gift of salvation isn't available to all. But God does recognize that not all will choose the gift of salvation. Some will still choose to rebel and remain against him. But if you don't take the substitutionary punishment that Jesus offered, if you don't have faith in Christ and put your faith in him and allow his death to substitute yours, then you stand before God in judgment on your own two feet, thinking you can measure up to his glory. And when you stand there, you find out you will not. But the door is open. You got to walk through the door. Jesus called himself the door. He is the only door, the only way in which to be saved. And if you choose not to walk through it, judgment comes. But the gift of grace is open and available to any because of the death of Jesus, but it will only be abounded to many, not all. Because not all will choose to accept the gift. You can be given a gift, you got to open it. If you don't use it, what good is the gift? You don't open it. That's what Paul is stating here. He says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. So because of Adam, condemnation came to all humanity because of sin. But the free gift which came from the offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So while Adam caused us all to be condemned, Jesus offers this free gift for us that we got to open. If we open it, we receive eternal life. We receive this gift of eternal abundant life through Jesus. Therefore, as one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. So the free gift is available to all men. 
resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So the free gift is available to all, but only many will be made righteous, because not all will choose to put their faith in Christ. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that, but where sin abound, grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's the point. We started off talking about sports teams and how a trade can completely change the dynamic of your team. It can make you a winner. It can give you the championship. It can get you to the ultimate goal for the end of the season. Or it can ruin everything. And if you're a fan of any of the same teams as me, you've experienced the losses because of bad management, bad front office decisions. So in this metaphor, you're the front office. You get to make the choice. Now, Adam is the first man. He's given you your human nature. You are a descendant of Adam. Because of him, you too have the same problems that he had. You have this fleshly desire to sin and you've given over to it. You have sinned. And just like Adam, you have been condemned by God because of your sin. You are morally responsible for the choices that you've made. Now, you can stick with Adam at the helm. That's your choice. He can be your quarterback. He can be your point guard. Doesn't matter. You can keep Adam on your team, and you can keep going the way that you're going. But what you're experiencing is a continual losing record. You're never making it to the finals. You're never making it even to the playoffs because Adam on your team, because you are a descendant of Adam, you have the same results as him. And so you can choose to keep playing that game, but you will continue to lose before God because you'll never reach the standard of righteousness that he requires because sin is a part of the equation. We all fail. We will continue to miss the free throws that are offered to us. We will continue to miss the big passes. We will continue to miss if we keep Adam on our team, but we can make a trade. That trade, the trade deadline is the last breath you take. That's the trade deadline. And if you do not make the trade before then, then you are stuck with Adam on your team and the sin that resulted from his decisions. And you are stuck in condemnation. But if you make the trade, if you pull the trigger and you make the trade, then it changes everything. And Jesus is now on your team and he takes the place of Adam and you receive new life, you are reborn. This is the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in the book of John. When he said to him, you have to be reborn. And he said, what do you mean reborn? This is what it means. You are offered new life because the condemnation that you were under from Adam's sin and from your own sin that you have committed because you're morally responsible for the decisions you make, you are under that condemnation. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, if you make that trade and you put your faith in him, 
and he becomes the center of everything instead of you, then that trade happens and you get new life. The slate is wiped clean and now all of a sudden when God looks at you, your debt of sin has already been paid for on the cross. So when he looks at you, he sees righteousness instead of sin. So when you stand before God in judgment, though your file might be filled with a lot of stuff you're not proud of, it's got a covering over it of Jesus' blood. And everything in the file folders has been wiped clean, like a whiteboard, just wiped away. Because God only sees righteousness because you made the trade. And now you get the opportunity for the end of the season, for the end of your life, to make the right choice to have victory. Because your mistakes, your failures, your sin is not seen, but the righteousness of Christ is seen, not because of what you did, but because of what he did and how he lived. And because he conquered death, he remained dead and buried for three days, but then rose from the grave, and with his resurrection, he is able to offer life to you, a new life. So if you make that trade, the slate's wiped clean, and victory comes. And it's the greatest trade you can make. Don't miss out on it. Wipe the slate clean. Victory comes. You're the front office. You're the general manager. You get to make that decision. You get to admit whether or not you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do. But you also get to make the leap to not just knowing that Jesus died and was raised from the dead and that he died for your sins, but you can actually put your faith in him. And his death can be a substitution for yours. And so when you're making the trade, what you're really doing isn't just Adam and Jesus. The first sin that Adam and Eve took part in was this. The lie the serpent told was that if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And that was too tempting for them to pass up. They wanted to put themselves in the throne seat. They wanted to be the ones making the moral judgments, being the kings of their own lives. This is the problem of humanity, our own pride. Often we hear about people who judge God as if they can tell God what's right and wrong when he's the author of right and wrong. He's the author of life. And we want to put ourselves in the judgment seat. We want to be the kings of our own lives. And so really the trade is saying, I'm actually stepping out of that chair and I'm putting Jesus on the throne because he's the one who rightfully deserves it. And when Jesus sits on the throne, that's when everything is right. Because the, the creator and author of life and of morality is now the one making the decisions and you are submitting to him rather than trying to tell God what you think. Submission to God's authority. The trade is really 
denying yourself, denying the lusts of the flesh, denying your instant gratification desires and putting Jesus at the helm and saying, I submit to you. And that's the best trade you can make. So let's pray together and ask him to sit on the throne. Father God, thank you. You made us in your image. You created us to bear your image. And what we've done with it is not okay. We have put a stain on the image of God as the image bears. We have done you wrong, Father. But rather than desiring to judge us, though you will because you are a righteous judge and you are fair and honest, choosing to not desire to judge us, you offered up the Lord Jesus Christ, your one and only begotten Son, to die in our place. Help us to be willing to step off the throne of our lives and give that seat to Jesus. Help us to make the right decision and to make the right trade before the trade deadline is up. God, we love you. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to not only take advantage of the free gift ourselves, but to be willing to offer it to those in the world who haven't had a chance to hear it, or even if they have, to continue to plant the seeds that they need to move towards you. God, this region needs you, and it needs people willing to share the gospel so that they can be saved. Help us as a church be one of the places that makes that difference here. In Jesus' name, amen.